you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Hebrews this morning, chapter 4, where we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16. We're going to end our service in a unique way today, uh, where we have the distinct privilege and honor of ordaining uh, 11 new men that are going to serve in the context of our deacon's ministry. Uh, We'll do two of those in this service, because this is the service that they normally attend. Uh, Then the remaining nine will be uh, in the contemporary service as well, and we are grateful for the process that they have walked through uh, with, in particular, our chairman of the board, Jay Gallagher, and for his diligence and all that with his team as well. Well, if you found your place, uh, follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord for us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Recently, I came across the story, as many of you probably heard in the news, of the 28-year-old individual by the name of James Grimes. And James Grime departed from the port of New Orleans on November of 23rd on a carnival cruise, the Carnival Valor. But soon after the ship departed, James went missing. And in a 3,756 passenger cruise ship headed towards Cozumel, Mexico, he was nowhere to be found within 24 hours. They searched, they called over the speaker, but James was nowhere. James had fallen overboard sometime that evening. They don't know why or how, and they said in the beginning, they speculated that he was there in the Gulf of Mexico, floating alone by himself for close to 14 hours, but the most recent report that I read that he was actually out there with approximately 20 hours. With standing water and degree temperatures of 65 to 70 degrees, wind knots of 20 uh, 20 knots winds and three to five foot waves. He inhabited a a water in an ocean where bull sharks and black tip sharks were plentiful. And after 20 hours, with no flotation devices, no boats, no flashlights, nothing to aid him and nothing to help him, he was rescued. Now, how in the world in that moment would you stay afloat for 20 hours? Many of us could not stay afloat without a device for five minutes. But for 20 hours, he persevered. For 20 hours, he endured. For 20 hours, he survived. Fighting back despair, the doubts that would have existed in his mind, the the willingness in those moments, in the deepest, darkest moments that no one's coming, no one's going to rescue, yet in those moments, James found the perseverance, he found the will to survive. Much like James's story, the book of Hebrews is really a book and it's a story about perseverance. It's a book about the the will to to hold fast. It's a a book about the will to, to persevere in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of strife. And I know that in the midst of this Christmas season, many of you are diligently planning with great expectation, great hope, great anticipation. And I I know that perhaps many of you, this as I look out into this room, maybe perhaps Christmas is not one of great hope for you. 
Perhaps maybe it's a season of despair. You've lost a loved one or you mourn the loss of a loved one and the anxiety and the angst that that builds in the midst of this is heavy on your heart, but fear not, my friend. For even in the midst of seasons and rhythms of life, whether life is going the way that we intended it to go or, or life has not gone the way that we intended it to go, there is still a word for us from the Lord. You see, one of the first things that I want you to notice in the text this morning is this admonition that the writer of Hebrews gives that we must hold to the faith tightly. He does this by using these words towards the end of verse 14 where he says, let us hold fast our confession." The reality of following Jesus is following the faith to follow is oftentimes a difficult task because we don't see the way that God sees and we don't know the things that God knows and so things come our way unexpectedly but to follow the faith as prescribed by Jesus and his word means that in this Christmas season where the culture and the world are seeking the treasures in all the wrong places, That we as a people of God, as a follower of Christ, being faithful to him to hold fast our confession, it means that we are to seek the treasures that are not of this earth, but rather that the treasures that are to come, the treasures that are being stored up for us in heaven. To hold fast means that we are to hold tightly. We are to hold firmly. We are to have a a good grip, if you will. It means to cling to something, or more particular in this case, to to cling to someone. It's the picture of a husband and wife who, who leave father and mother and they cling tightly to one another all the days of their lives. They hold fast to one another. But you see, he uses this word to hold fast to our confession. And this is a reminder for the believer that that we hold the truth to a reminder that there is a truth, that there is a a real and and an objectifiable truth to our profession of faith. You see, it matters what we believe as followers of Christ. Oftentimes in, in being in pastoral ministry, I'll come across individuals that say, oh, pastor, I don't care about any of that doctrinal stuff and all of those things that divide us. I just want to love Jesus, and I love this statement because it's like teeing up a, a golf ball with a, with a driver, and I say to them, well, very well, but, but do you not understand that that statement exclusively, that I just want to love Jesus, that it is in fact a very doctrinally driven statement. It means something, and they'll say, well, what do you mean? It's just as simple as that. Well, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to be in love? Is it a, is it a friendship kind of love? Is, is it a romantic love? What does love mean? Does it, does it have many layers? How do I express that love? What is the expression and the, and the token of those things? And, and oh, by the way, you say, Jesus, well, well, who in the world is that? There have been many people that have come alongside in the realms of history that have claimed to be the Christ just as Jesus did. And so when we say we we just want to love Jesus, we mean something by that. There's substance to that. It, It means to love our neighbors and as we love ourselves. It means to care for the marginalized and the poor. It means to seek justice and and mercy. To, To follow Jesus means that we adhere to his commands. 
We know what his commands are and and we understand what those commands mean. To seek first the the kingdom of God in all things. All of these things are, are points that point to the substance that exists within the statement, I just want to love God. Church, he says, let us hold fast to our confession. But number two, what he does in this text this morning is he not only gives us uh, the thing that we hold on to tightly, our faith, but he gives us a reason that Christ is our high priest. Notice with me, uh, verse 14, the beginning part of it, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. If Hebrews on a larger viewpoint is a book about perseverance, If Hebrews, on the larger point, relates to persevering is connected to our right understanding of who God is, then it begs us to ask the question, what motivates us in the midst of life's struggles? What motivates us in the midst of of turmoil? What motivates us to hold tightly to the confession that God has given? The answer is in verse 14. Because we have a great high priest who has passed all the way through the heavens. Now to understand this, we really have to have some understanding of an Old Testament background. You see, he calls Jesus this great high priest and there's this understanding that the believer, he comes to the word and he, and he has some inclination of, of what the high priest did in the Old Testament. He has an inclination of, of why the high priest did all of the things that he did in the Old Testament. And just to give you a, a quick refresher course on, on what actually happened, one of the most famous priests of all was Aaron. And as Aaron would approach what was known as the Day of Atonement, He would divulge himself of what they called his priestly vestments, these very ornate garments that he would wear usually in the context of ceremony. And he would put on just this regular whitewashed linen. And he would begin to to look and to prepare the, the inner sanctum or the holy of holies. He would secure the animals that were to be sacrificed. Now, as I describe some of this to you, I promise to keep it to a PG rating. But I promise you the description of of what happens in the midst of this temple would not have been PG for, for most children. And the reason why is because of the blood and the sacrifice and the harshness that existed within this moment to atone for the sins of the people of God. And so Aaron would secure the necessary animals. He would gather a bull for his own sin offering. He would gather two male goats for the people's sin offering. Two rams, one for Aaron's and and the other for the people's burnt offering. Then Aaron would go and, and he would slaughter the bull for his own self. As prescribed by God in Exodus 28. Before he would enter into the inner sanctum or the holy of the holies with the blood of the bull, he had to create a cloud of of incense that would exist there. A cloud that would shield him, if you will, from the glory of God that rested upon the ark, on on the mercy seat. And so he would fill the room in the holy of holies with this smoke and and with this incense. And Aaron was the only one that was prescribed to do this. He would then, once that was sufficient, he would take some of the blood of the bull and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven different times. Next, he would make atonement at the altar for the burnt offering and he would use the blood of both the bull and the goat. Now, the second goat, the one that which was kept alive, it had the sins of the nation symbolically put on top of it. 
And he was driven from the camp. To, to, the one that was kept alive was then driven from the camp. And the other one was sacrificed for the nation. Aaron would then enter the tent of meeting and he would remove his garments and he would put on his, his vestments again, if you will. And then the burnt offerings of the rams, one for Aaron and his family and the other for the people was now offered. And now all of the sacrifice were completed upon this day. And anyone who touched any of the animals, anyone who touched any of the blood, they washed themselves and there they returned to camp. It was a horrific scene. And the, the thing is that on this day of atonement was this cleansing of a place, but it was also a cleansing of a people that was necessary and needed and right. And this was the function of the high priest there in that moment. This annual sacrifice that took place six months after Passover, sometime in the fall, and the people of God, they, they dreaded this moment. It was a horrific moment in every which way, but here's the significance of this moment. You see, everything that Aaron did in this moment, it, it points forward, it points ahead. That, that someday Jesus was going to come and, and someday they would have a true great high priest that would not have to sacrifice any animals. They would not have to cleanse any people. They, they would not have to burn any incense because he was perfect and without blemish and he lived a sinless and a stainless life. It would point to the idea that one day a savior would come, a priest that was sufficient, that could come before the father on your behalf and on my behalf. You see, because of Jesus, this great high priest, we are reconciled to the father. And therefore, because of that, there are no sacrifices of bulls and rams and, and goats. There is no more burning of incense. We come to the Father, to the mercy seat at the foot of the cross because of the blood of the cross. For he told them in Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. You see at the foot of the cross, this is where we peacefully Sacrificially, we, we meet with God because of Jesus at the mercy seat of Christ. The second aspect of Christ's priestly ministry that the writer of Hebrews reminds us of is that he is able to sympathize with his people. And I think perhaps more than any Old Testament biblical theology, I think that in the midst of a, of a holiday season where everyone in here experiences it quite differently and to differing agrees, the idea that Jesus would sympathize with us, that he is able as God to sympathize with us. For verse 15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, who is able to understand, not understand with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet he was different than we are because yet he was without sin. Now, what does it mean? The question is, what does it mean that in every respect he was tempted as we are? He was certainly uh, tempted, brought out into the desert by Satan who tried to entice him in all kinds of different ways. To, he actually tried to entice him to give him the, king, the keys of the earthly kingdoms to, to prevent him from harming himself as he, as he fell, to turn rocks into, into bread. But the difference is that in that moment, because of who Christ was, the Son of God, he did not have the vulnerability and the susceptibility that you and I often have as human beings because he was the Christ. 
Because as Satan tempts him, he, he knows uh, and he knows better and he's not uh, allowing our hearts, which oftentimes lead us astray because he was perfect. And somewhere in the midst of that mystery of his humanity and his deity, he withstood those temptations and he withheld from those temptations. He was not susceptible to those temptations just as you and I so often are. And why was it significant that he do this? Why would he go through something like this? It was necessary in every way for him to do this as he calls us brothers and sisters in the family so that he could be our merciful and he could be our peaceful high priest before God, understanding and sympathizing with us in every way. You see, this very morning, the Lord that you serve the Savior to whom we sing to, the Savior to whom we look to during this season of Advent, he is completely aware because he understands and he does sympathize of all your trials. And he feels them alongside you with deep acquaintance. He is acquainted with grief. He is acquainted with sorrow. He is acquainted with difficulties. And he in this very moment, wherever you sit in this room or watching elsewhere, he is not disinterested in you, he is not cold towards you. He is not indifferent towards you. He knows intimately well what it is that you go through in this moment. In fact, he goes so far elsewhere in the book of Romans, he goes so far as that he pleads your cause before our heavenly father. He intercedes and, and he speaks to you. He gives you the spiritual resources that you need. Our only requirement in this moment, the only thing that he asks us to do in reminding us of his character and his nature and who he is, our requirement is simply this, to hold fast and firmly to the faith that we profess. To cling tightly to it to remind our families, to remind ourselves that we have been reconciled to the Father through Jesus. Therefore, because of those things, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and that we may find grace to help us in our time of need. I don't know how many of you are in need this morning. I don't know what all of your circumstances are that, that you need him. What does it mean when he says to approach the throne of grace with confidence, to come before him? It means to, frankly, to get on your knees and to pray and to commune with him, to walk with him. But if you say you love Jesus, there needs to be demonstration of that and fruit of that in your life as you, as you speak to him and as you ask him and as you yield to him, as you come before his word and, and you let his word speak. And if you are in a time of great need this morning, the good news is for you is that there is one who is able to help. There is one who is willing to help, who, who stands ready to, to strengthen your arms and, and your life where your arms and your knees and your body is frail and weak. He is there to make you strong. Whatever you are facing today, he still is, as he was last week and Jim prayed earlier, he still is our wonderful counselor, our, our helpmate. He comes alongside and he guides us and he leads us. But I wanna leave you with three admonitions in your time of need to remind you about that many of you already know that were helpful for me this week and hopefully they're helpful for you as well. 
that whatever you're facing as you approach Christ, our wonderful counselor, as you ask for his help, number one is this, is that you must be completely honest with him. You must be completely honest with him. We all share a tendency to keep the truth about our problems concealed. And we can have a tendency oftentimes that that we want to deceive ourselves and and believe something that perhaps is not true. Perhaps that's because we we feel shame admitting the full problem or or the extent of our issues. For sometimes we we don't even want to acknowledge the problems. We want to pretend that they're not there. And then what happens is over and over they compound themselves and it gets far worse. Listen, until we are fully open and honest with Jesus about our problems, we can't get help with our problems. He won't help us in our time of need. We have to be honest and real before him and completely candid because the reality is, is that Jesus knew everything about you when he came to you. And he already knows and he already understands there is not one thing about you today that could be revealed to him that would be a surprise to him. There is not one hidden sin, there is not one circumstance, there is not one situation that is hidden from him and nothing that you have done for those that are in Christ is not, not covered already by his blood that was shed on that cross. It was not already accounted for. He has power so great that there is no problem that he cannot transform. There is no problem that he cannot heal. But number two is this, not only you have to be completely honest with Jesus, you have to want to be healed. So often uh, we find ourselves entrapped in our sin. We find ourselves entangled, as, as uh, the author says elsewhere, entangled in our sins, in this web of, of lies and, and deceit. And until we come to the place where we say, Father, I want to be healed. And we're not ready to be healed. We're not being honest with him in the midst of that. We usually just want God to clean up the mess in our lives without dealing with the choices and the patterns that existed that got us into the mess in the first place. Is that not true? God, clean this up for me. And and if you can, clean it up. But then let's not deal with all the things that led up to this moment. We have to want to be healed. But then thirdly, and, and most importantly, where we end this morning, you have to do whatever Jesus says. You can't pick and choose. You can't say I'm, I'm comfortable with this one, but I, I'm not so much comfortable with this one. You have to listen and you have to, you have to follow. You have to seek to understand. He tells you to extend forgiveness, but then you seek vengeance. He tells you to end the relationship, but then you're scared of being alone. He tells you to give sacrificially, but then you say, how how will I even afford that? He tells you to make the move, but then you say, no, I'm comfortable right where I am. You have to listen and do whatever Jesus says. Why? Because he is our great high priest. Because he is our wonderful counselor. Because he has never turned his back or forsaken you. Because he promises us that as we walk with him, his hand of blessing comes alongside that. It comes in the context of obedience to him. Sometimes in his mercy, he blesses us even when we're not obedient, but that that is not the norm and that is not the thing that the Christian should strive for. Therefore, because of who he is, let us draw to him with confidence to the throne of grace, unmerited favor that we may receive mercy and that we may find grace to help us in our time 
of need. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this season. We pray that it encourages our hearts today. We pray now that as we transition in our time together and as we uh, recognize these two men today, we pray that it would be a a cause and and a time of seriousness, a time of commission, a time of sending, and we're grateful for that, for we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.